Captain. Let's move. ABC Thursdays. Firefighters, we're family. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. The subject has explosive chemicals. Get down! With fiery romances. You're the love of my life. And Andy is finally in charge. I'm going to be the best damn captain the station has ever seen. Station 19, all new Thursdays, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. For years... Chinese residents of New York City lived in fear and walked the city streets with a target on their backs. Local Chinese businesses and undocumented immigrants were frequent victims of robbery, kidnapping, and extortion at the hands of ruthless gangs. However, it wasn't until 1995 that the extent of their vicious crimes was revealed. Residents of Borough Park, Brooklyn, reported a fire emerging from a basement window at a nearby apartment. First responders arrived at the scene, but nothing could prepare them for the ghastly sight they uncovered. As they kicked down the door to extinguish the flames, firefighters witnessed an incoherent woman whose body was wrapped in duct tape. Another woman was found brutally tortured and killed. Attached to the back of her shirt was a King of Clubs playing card with a warning message for law enforcement. Although the note was designed to taunt police, it provided the very clues needed to catch the killers. I'm Emily Campagno, and this is the Fox True Crime Podcast. The Fujianese Flying Dragons were a powerful gang that dominated New York City's Chinatown. On August 22, 1995, the gang targeted an undocumented woman who worked in a Queen's garment factory. The group contacted her family in China and demanded a ransom of $38,000. When her family was unable to meet the amount, the gang viciously beat, tortured, and later murdered the woman. The gang also kidnapped two other victims, a man and a woman, and tortured them in the same apartment. When their families similarly failed to meet the demands, the criminals planned on killing the two captives. The gang departed the basement, bringing with them the male victim, intent on killing him at a separate location. They bound and left the female captive behind. Desperate to survive, She used all her might to catch a newspaper on fire with her teeth, signaling attention to the outside world. Dan Murphy is a co-host of the Gold Shields Show podcast, a retired NYPD detective sergeant who served in the major case squad. He played a central role in solving this riveting international case. Today, he joins me with the gripping details of his cross-country hunt for the King of Clubs killers. So, Dan, what was the NYPD's major case squad, what were they working on in late August of 1995? Well, when I was assigned there in August of 95, we were in the middle of a several-year period where we were being hit with quite a few kidnappings for ransom that involved specifically Fujian province, China, uh, usually illegal aliens who were being kidnapped and, and exploited by Chinese gangs. Uh, they were a very hardworking group of people, and they were being manipulated and exploited uh, left and right. And we were getting 55 to 60 kidnapping cases a year of these individuals, and they were particularly brutal. And my unit had gained an expertise in working on those cases, and I had an expertise in the Asian organized crime world in New York City as detective. I developed some of that. So we were very, very busy with these cases. And um, today's case is a story of one that was uh, far more in-depth than most of them, but it was it was a reflection of the times in the mid-90s. There was a lot of desperation of poor people in South Southeast China making their way to America by any means they could, and that's what we were dealing with in this case. Can you share a little bit about 
before we get into this specific case, the landscape of in that expertise of Asian organized crime um, and specifically this this portion of China, what was the hallmark of these gangs? What what, what did that look like? What was their footprint like? Um, how did how were they different than other organized crime families or trades that you had encountered in NYPD? Organized crime is organized crime in many ways. It's a hierarchical structure. You've got your leaders, you've got your lieutenants, you've got your street enforcers or bosses, and you've got your workers and your crews. Now, in Chinese or Asian organized crime in New York City, I'll say, because it was more than Chinese, we had Koreans, we had um, Vietnamese crews. They were largely, um, at least the traditional Chinese crews, were largely geographically based. For example, Chinatown was bracketed off. If you were a ghost shadow, this was your street. If you were, if you were a um, flying dragon, this was your street. And you stayed in your area. They were very careful not to go into other people's areas because that was an act of uh, defiance and usually was met with violence. Very sophisticated world. And because we didn't know the language, they operated in many ways with impunity, extorting uh, businesses. Um, in their area, they, they ran everything. And they did it usually for larger Chinese organizations called Tongs. And they were semi-legitimate, or at least it appeared to be legitimate, but they were gaining money off all of the illegal activities. And a big part of that was the flow of illegal aliens into the New York City area from the poorest sections of China, utilizing a variety of transportation methods, and the gangs would prey upon them. They were working on behalf of the Tongs. I'll give an example. If you had to pay the person that brought you to America uh, $1,000 a month for... 10 years or something for bringing you here, you'd be working and every first of the month, let's say the gang would come see you in the apartment you share with 18 other people. And they would get your money and bring it back to the person who brought you over. Well, it wasn't uncommon that the night before those apartments would get robbed Mm. because they knew all the money was there. They would rob them. And the next day the gang would show up and say, where's the money? I say, we got robbed. I don't care that you got robbed. You now owe us this much. It was really an indentured servitude that, and and these poor people went through so much. And often they were were victims of kidnappings because the gangs knew that they were afraid to come to the New York City Police Department and say, hey, my my uncle, my cousin, my daughter has been kidnapped for fear of the entire family being deported. And if they could pay and find a way to pay, they preferred to pay quietly. The cases that we received were the cases where the persons felt they could not, they had no means to pay and they were desperate and they wanted their loved one back. And a lot of these victims were young women and you can imagine the manipulation and the torture and the experiences that they had at the hands of these gangs. It was it was a terrible, terrible series of, of events that was happening in New York City and much of it beneath the radar of the average person because of the closed nature of the society and the language and cultural differences. And we had to learn that. And we had some experts in that area. I had developed a bit of an expertise in it over time, working on a number of cases. I knew who some of the players were. I knew who the leaders of the gangs were, where they were headquartered, uh, what type of criminal activities they did. And this specific case today we'll talk about was a bit of a, a branching off because there was a traditional hold on Chinese organized crime by what, what they called American-born Chinese or Cantonese Chinese, Canton regions of China. This specific period of time saw a massive influx from the Fuzhou region. And the Fuzhou gangs were more violent, more prone to doing things that the traditional gangs might not have done as much of. And they posed a threat. So there was a lot of internal struggles and battles going on within the Asian organized crime community in New York City at the time. It was a fascinating time to work these cases. And it was a very fluid time. One final question before we proceed into this exact case. The question I have is regarding the business model for them. Traditionally, kidnappings Mm -hmm. as sources of income for gangs and gang units, especially in Central America and South America, target high profile or high net worth individuals um, or foreign Mm -hmm. citizens because of the guarantee or the higher propensity that they will, in fact, get money. So but what I'm hearing here is the victims are largely from these poor provinces and the victims, the indentured servitudes, of course, are have you know little to no money. So I'm curious if there's any explanation 
as to why they continued employing the kidnapping business model when the families who were being asked to pay up for these guys, um, the whole point is that they didn't have any money to begin with. Well, there's two ways to look at it. Some of the victims had businesses here in America and they were working 16 hours a day, seven days a week. And they figured they had some money. Sometimes they did, sometimes they didn't. And some of the victims, their families had businesses or owned homes back in the Fujiao region of China. And they would work with their crew members back in Fujiao. So an example would be, I kidnap your daughter in New York. I jump on a phone call with your family in Fujiao. I let you hear that your daughter's with me. I tell you that you have to pay me $38,000. And that was a number almost across the board that they would ask for. Eight is a lucky number in their world. $38,000 you pay or your daughter dies. Okay, I don't. where am I going to get the money? If you have a business or even if you don't, within hours, there's a knock on your door and there are two people there. I hear you need a loan. So now all of a sudden you're indentured for the rest of your life. Or they take your business or your house or both. They absolutely devastated their own people by doing this. They got desperate. They created desperate situations. They offered a way out. And the way out was always to create a lifetime of indentured servitude uh, and debt. They had a variety of different ways based upon who the victims were. They tended to try to target people who might have some ability to raise it or had family in China who could put something on the line. And sometimes they grabbed somebody mistakenly and um, the person had absolutely nothing. And that was when we either got involved or that person would end up dead. We're going to take a quick break. More from our guest after this. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price line. Which brings us to this case. So, mm-hmm. so tell us about this one. Towards the end of August of 1995, the Major Case Squad is a specific spot squad within the NYPD's Detective Bureau that handles certain types of crimes. They are, they are the our our bread and butter. And one of those crimes, uh, they're high-profile crimes. They're the homicides of police officers we assist on. And kidnapping for ransom is one. So any, th- any kidnapping for ransom that's reported in New York City was handled specifically by my squad. We were headquarters-based, very experienced detectives, highly stressful cases. They're, the, they're one of the very few matters you can be involved in where if you don't do something right, the victim can get killed. Mm. It's not a post-incident investigation you have to handle it properly or that person can get killed. So they're very stressful and they require a lot of uh, experience and and technique and and the squad was great at them. This case came in 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 the end of August. There was two separate kidnappings reported by family members of Chinese individuals who were in the country, probably illegally. I could look at the records, but they were recent arrivals. They were hardworking people and they were kidnapped but they were not reported to have been taken at the same place at the same time. So they were two separate cases and two detectives each had those cases and there was very little to go on. And we found out later why there was so little to go on. It's because the, the ransom calls were not being made to locations within New York city where a family member could easily report to us. They were being made to China. So, they were going to do the situation in China where the people were going to come pick the money up from them or take the property from them in China, and then they would wire back proceeds to the gang in New York. These two individuals are kidnapped. It's right before the Labor Day weekend. The cases are going nowhere for a couple of days. I had left town. I had gone out to Montauk with friends and family, and it was it was just a long weekend. And coming back on Monday, it was actually back in the days of 1995 beepers. We all know what a beeper is now. It's like a phone booth. It's it's uh, an antique. <laughs> I didn't have a cell phone, and I'm driving back on the Long Island Expressway, and my beeper, once I get inside range, is going off like crazy. And it's the office. And I finally find a payphone. I, I manage a payphone, another antique. I called the office, and they said everything just, you know, hit the fan with those two cases. They're, they're together. I got, the, I got the very quick story. What happened was this. Those two individuals were kidnapped by a subset of the Fukunese Flying Dragons. 
And I had at the, at the time been doing a federal RICO investigation of the Fukunese Flying Dragons. And I had a lot of intelligence on them. I had a lot of pictures. I knew a lot about who they were, where they were. And this was a subset crew that I hadn't really heard about. But they kidnapped these people. They brought them to an apartment in Borough Park, Brooklyn, along with a third victim whose kidnapping was not reported to the police. So there were three people, two women and a male, all adults, but all relatively young. During the course of the kidnapping, they had tried to negotiate and uh, get ransom from each of the three. One of the females family was very upfront. They had no ability whatsoever. They were dirt poor and they couldn't give anything. Well, they decided to kill this poor woman and they killed her brutally. Now, every homicide is a brutal, violent experience, but this poor woman went through uh, a number of different things. She was stabbed repeatedly. She was strangled. She was hung from a weight bench. She had her head crashed in with a television set significant head damage uh, to, to the, the side of her head, as well as having a plastic bag tied around her neck just in case she was breathing. So they left this poor woman hanging by a noose from a exercise bench in the small apartment. Now, next to her, they had the other female who was wrapped up in duct tape like a cocoon, and they had a male. Now, what they had done to these two people during the course of the kidnapping of, of their captivity, these three people, was they used them as toys in some very sick, perverted ways. They forced them to all have sexual relations with each other. They forced some things that I cannot say, uh, I won't say for, out of respect for the victims and just out of decency. They did some subhuman acts to these three people. They managed to make calls out to China for the other two. Things weren't going as they wanted. They wanted to pull the plug on it, the kidnappers. So after a few days of, of losing their excitement with watching all the, the brutality, and, and they decided, okay, we've had enough. They, they killed a woman. They left the one woman there. They grabbed the male. They tied his arms up, and they took him out. And as they were taking him out, they told the woman lying on the floor, we're going to take him out. We're going to kill him. And then we're going to come back and we're going to kill you. And she's lying on the floor and she knows, you know, as clear as anything that they are killers. They've killed this one right next to me. They're going to come back and kill me. Well, they took the mail out to a different location in a car. They pulled off the, uh, a highway in eastern Queens near Nassau County, pulled him out of the car, shot him in the head. But the bullet didn't penetrate his skull. It traveled around the exterior of his cranium and exited, causing a concussion and a fracture to the skull, but not killing him. While this is happening, back in the apartment, and then they left him there. Back, they thought he was dead. Back in the apartment, the woman on the floor realizes that it's do something or die. She manages to crawl over like a worm, if you can imagine how you would move if you're fully covered in duct tape. And she finds a newspaper. They had newspapers everywhere, Chinese language newspapers. She put one in her mouth. She moved her way over to the stove and managed to fling it up on top of the stove. Then she managed to move her body in such a way that she was able to, with her mouth, turn the flame on. This caused just enough of a fire to go out an open basement window into the street, which alerted neighbors who called 911. So now the room is filled with smoke because she threw as much paper as she could up there. The fire department responds to this fire. They kick the door in because nobody was answering, of course, and they find this gruesome scene, this dead person and this woman who is talking incoherently in a different language. And uh, because it was the 66th precinct in Borough Park, Brooklyn, they had dealt with a lot of Asians. There were some Asian-speaking officers who managed to start to unravel the story. Again, simultaneously, at this, as this is happening, the male, who is now... Uh, concussed and his head is hurting him and he's very confused. He's being, he hasn't eaten in a week. He's been uh, traumatized, wanders onto the highway and almost gets killed, causes an accident. 911 gets called and it's just, everything starts snowballing. And once the interviews are being conducted at the scenes of these two events, the one gentleman who, who's then taken to the hospital with the head wound and back at the crime scene with the dead woman and the other woman in the fire, it becomes obvious that two of these folks are people who have been reported kidnapped to the major case squad, which prompts an, a call to my squad, Brooklyn South Homicide, major case squad, 66 precinct detective squad. All of us are now working on this case.
I get directed to report immediately out to Long Island Jewish Hospital on my way back, which is where the male was with a gunshot wound to the head. He was coherent and he was able to view pictures. And I was one of those guys that in the back of my car, I had probably 200 images of people who were members of the Fukunese Flying Dragons. And I went to show him pictures. Well, the investigation starts with a massive effort on our part. We have to peel back now. We're not looking for a ransom drop. We want to know who it is that did this. Every piece of evidence from the scene is gathered. Statements are taken from people uh, who are hysterical. The woman that was still alive at the scene was hospitalized for a variety of injuries, and she was able to give statements, but uh, we knew we had to rely on things like anything we could find in the apartment that was a paper, a news, uh, uh, something, um, a phone number had been written down, or a nickname, or, or maybe someone left a beeper behind or something. We're beginning our investigation, and it takes off, and it's going around the clock. What happened to the woman who was killed is what prompted the media interest more than anything else. Now, in New York City, you would think someone killed under such circumstances would be a big story, and it is a story. But here's the kick. The kicker was the gang wanted to taunt the police. They wanted to challenge us. They felt they were smarter than us, so they wrote a note in their language, and they put it down the back of the shirt of the dead woman. And the note basically said it had with it a playing card, the king of clubs. And it said, this is a clue to our identity. You will never catch us. The white devil, you are not as smart as us. We can act with impunity, basically. I have the words of it somewhere, but it essentially taunts us and says, we can do whatever we want. The media picked up on it, the Chinese language newspapers, as well as the regular newspapers, picked up on it and dubbed it the King of Clubs case because of that. Now, we were getting a lot of internal pressure within the department, and we always do on a case like this. You've got to try to find these people. We don't take that stuff lying down. In the NYPD, we take these cases extremely seriously. We don't sleep. We're going to find you. And we put a lot of people on this case, and we did a lot of work. Well, we were getting some progress, but not what we wanted. A couple of days later, standing in the detective squad, talking to someone I work with, and a phone rings and we get a call. It turned out that these individuals in the kidnapping had used a calling card. At the time, there were things called AT&T calling cards, international calling card. Just like a, a credit card, you would buy $100 worth of international calling time on this card and you'd get a number. And when you went to a phone, you dialed in a PIN number and then you put the numbers in and it, it worked off the value of the card. Kind of like using a, uh, not a credit card, what is it called? A gift, gift card. card, yeah. Yeah. So they were doing that, and the card number, the specific card number that was used to call China in this case for the victim's families was also the same numbers used by a crew in Seattle at the same time to do a kidnapping. Now, the FBI had worked that kidnapping in Seattle and had made two arrests. They had several victims. They had six perpetrators involved, and they had made two arrests. We found this out through the phone work. We contacted the FBI in Seattle. They invited us out to come and interview their two arrested defendants in federal lockup to see if we could get them to cooperate and tell us who their crew was, because obviously they're linked. They have the same calling card number they're using. Of course they're linked, right? Wait, can I ask a quick so, question? Mm -hmm. At this point, so you mentioned how you brought the images to the surviving woman. Did she mm -hmm. identify certain individuals? No, at that time okay. she did not. She was not, okay. Um, the male made an identification, it turned out to be a misidentification, but we pursued that. It's very easy to do when you're very stressed, you know? Of course. Um, yeah. So at that Go point, ahead. so the point is you were, you did not have any positive identifications at that point of who those perps were. So when you, when you connected with Seattle FBI, that was the first time there was mm -hmm. a, a, a lead as to who exactly were these king of clubs. Right. I, okay. All right. So you fly out there and then what happens? Myself and another detective, Billy Oldham, flew out there and we interviewed these two individuals who gave us essentially nothing. But we did learn uh, some of their information. Uh, when we arrested people for crimes like this, we would take phone numbers out of their phone. If they had a phone, a beeper, we would download all the information. If they had this is back in the day when people had little black books with names and numbers. We took all of it down, made copies of all of it, ran all of it. We ran their criminal histories. We ran their cars, everything to see what we could learn about them, to find out about who their cohorts might be. Well, we came back with some information for a starter, and we had an idea, but we didn't really have a lot of data. These, this was a crew that hadn't really been arrested a lot, if at all. 
so they were still unknown to the police. Mm. So about another day later after coming back, again, the same detective, Bill Oldham, who I worked with a bunch on this and who actually has some incredible accomplishments in his career, he is standing with me and he looks at me and he says, they're in L.A. I said, what do you mean they're in L.A.? He goes, they're in L.A. And it was typical vintage. Billy always makes you ask 10 questions to get an answer. <laughs> what do you mean they're in L.A., Bill? They're in L.A. because they're in L.A. because my snitch, he had informants everywhere, just called me and said that they're staying at his apartment. So Bill had an informant in L.A. These guys went out to hide out in his apartment. So he brings them food, goes out to a payphone and calls Bill and says, yeah, these guys you're looking for, they're bragging about this case. That's all over the news. They said they did it. They're here in my apartment. And he was in, I think, Alhambra Park or Alhambra subdivision of L.A. in L.A. County. So. With that, my captain looks at us and goes, what are you doing here? Get on a plane now. So with the clothes we had in our back, the suits we had on, get to the airport, flight to L.A. We get out there, middle of the night, we're driving around L.A., just hooking up with local police agencies. We did so much work in L.A. County in the first couple of days. The L.A. County Sheriff's Office was great. We finally find an apartment. They're no longer with the snitch. They've moved to a different place. We figure out where it is. With the L.A. Sheriff's Office, they were great. We get there, it's probably 3 o'clock in the morning to this this room. It's like a Melrose place, outdoor yeah. uh, kind of place, with, almost like a motel. We go there, we identify the door, we knock on the door. Then we bang on the door, and they know who we are at this point. One of them jumps out the back window, breaks the window as he's jumping out, so desperate to get out of the apartment, into a tree, falls down, and compound fractures his leg on the ground, on the concrete. With that, the L.A. sheriffs that were in the back of the, of the location grab him. The other guy's inside still. He won't open the door, so we put our foot through the door. It's a simple little wooden door. And I come in on the first one in, and he's sitting on the floor. And in front of him, this one guy, he's probably five foot four, 110 pounds. A little nothing, but a tough guy with a gun, right? He thinks he's the tough guy. He's got, he's got the identification of 17 previous kidnapping victims in front of him. They kept the identification of everybody they kidnapped. Now, genius? No, because it made it easy for us. But he's got them all on the floor, and he gets up and he tries to do, you know, you've all seen the karate kid, right? The way he does the, what do you call it, the, the crane? Yeah. He gets up and he tries to go into like a kung fu stance on me. And I'm 6'3", at the time, 2'5", 2 2'10". 2 I haven't slept. I'm pissed off. And this guy's coming at me with his version of Kung Fu, and it didn't work. It's just ir irresistible force. and it, it just didn't work. Didn't work for him at all. But we made those two arrests. The other three perpetrators, and there were five perpetrators involved, had been staying with them. We just missed them, Emily. They went out to get booze and cigarettes. Mm. And they saw our cars, we found out later, when they were coming back, and they just kept going. There was hot food on the stove. They left a bunch of their stuff there, though. So we had a lot of intelligence. Now, we know we have three outstanding players. These two guys aren't talking to us. They don't want to say a word. How are we going to get these other players? Well, working all night long with the information that we got, we managed to find a number that had come back somewhere before in our systems to be somebody who was a member of this gang. So it seemed to be present on, on several of their beepers. So let's go for it. We set up a dummy phone number. We set up a number with a Chinatown, New York exchange through our phone work. And we had experts in our detectives uh, bureaus, technical assistance response unit that were phenomenal with phones. We set up this phone number and we, we beeped them to this phone number. And about eight hours later, we get a call back and we put a code in that we knew they would respond to because we had done enough phone work with them. They love certain, like I said, they not love the number eight. If you put 888-911-888 into a page to one of them, these gang members, it meant prosperity, big money, important, call me now. So we did that. This guy calls back, and all we didn't need to pick the phone up. We just need to see where he's calling from. Turns out he's calling from the Super 8 Motel. Again, the number eight. They love eight. In Milpitas, California, up outside San Jose. So they're in this place, and we're like, okay, that's where he is. That's where this guy is. So we call the Milpitas Police Department. Now we're down in LA. We run to the airport. 
we got on a 6 a.m. or something commuter flight going up to San Francisco. We get met on the tarmac. They bring us all the way out to Milpitas. The Milpitas Police Department had surrounded the hotel all night long. And there was three people, three Asians that checked in to this one room. We spoke to the staff. Okay, we were trying to keep as low, you know, lay as low as possible outside of this big hotel. Again, it was a motel type situation. So finally, we make entry into the apartment. And, you know, you have to laugh at some of these guys because when the stress is on, people don't always do the smartest things. Like, for example, when we hit the door in, in the hotel, the Milpitas Police Department hit it. They had the police authority to do it. They hit the door, and in the back of this small one bedroom with two beds, one of the perps runs into the bedroom, the bathroom and closes the door. One, a, a normal human being would ask, why would you do that? Because he doesn't know what else to do. He's desperate to try to get away. But we ended up arresting them, uh, the three of them. We brought them in, and these guys had done, we got positive identifications for each of those 17 kidnappings. We managed to track down each of those victims. The case was prosecuted in Eastern District Federal Court, and it just was a bonanza for information because they had been involved in so much criminal activity, not just those 17 kidnappings, but they were on a tear. And the reason they put the note in the back of the dead woman was because they were so brazen they had been getting away with these crimes and getting away with them, and they thought they had targeted the right people. They thought if they just targeted these really poor people who are illegal in this country, none of them are going to go to the police. We're going to get what we want from them. And if we just keep doing many of them, we'll eventually get a landslide of money. Well, they're all actually, I have no doubt, each of them is still in federal prison. The main perpetrator of the case, the... Um, I won't even say his name to, to honor him, but he is in the federal supermax in Florence, Colorado, uh, because of the nature and brutality of the crimes against them. We, we drafted with the U.S. Attorney's Office a federal racketeering indictment against them, and they are never getting out of prison, always in federal prison. It was, it was a, an amazing set of case. When, you know, I have glossed over the incredible work that was done both here in New York, in New York City by the members of the NYPD, but also the departments out west, our partners in the private sector and phone companies and people like that. It was a collective effort that was, it, it resulted in an incredible capture of some people who easily could have slid through the cracks and hidden from us for a long, long time. But creativity, ingenuity, uh, understanding of how these criminals work, understanding their methods and, and um, we just tapped into that and it was, I mean, I, I was exhausted and we, we finally made the arrests. We brought them in. They were being processed into federal court out in, in San Francisco and we were so tired. The chief of detectives actually called us up at the hotel and said, go to dinner, have drinks, give me the bill when you get back. Now, that's, a, that's an offer a cop would usually take very happily. But when you haven't slept more than two hours a night for 10 nights. I mean, I had been in the course of eight days or so, I had been New York, Seattle, New York, LA, Milpitas. And I don't even know where I am. I slept in an airport for an hour and a half before a flight once. I mean, we're so tired, but it was a really, really gratifying moment when I finally got on a flight home the next day. We were going to send some fresh people out to continue the post-arrest investigation. Finally caught a flight home from San Francisco and I didn't have any I didn't have any clothes. So I had to go to a, an all night store someplace in San Francisco and buy the only thing I could get, which was Levi's stuff. It's Levi's country. So I'm wearing a pair of Levi's jeans, a Levi's T-shirt. I look like a walking Levi's ad. I strap into my seat and the flight attendant straps into her crash seat right across me. And I'm reading The New York Times only because I saw on the front page that you know, above the fold, they had the article about the case. And I wanted to see if they got it right. And they did. They did a good job. Our, our public information people gave them the right information. It was actually very factually correct. I'm reading the article and she looks at me. She goes, what do you work for, Levi's? No, no, I don't work for Levi's. I'm just a real tired guy going home. And she said, well, what do you do? And I couldn't even, I was too tired to even explain to her. So I just handed a paper. I said, I was involved in this. She's reading it as we're taking off. And she looks at me, she goes, really? You were really? I said, yeah. Said, oh my gosh. I said, I haven't been home. I just want to go home. 
see my family. I just, I just want to, you know, go sleep in my bed, do all those little things that, that you really take for granted. And on the way out off the plane, it dawned on me how incredibly gratifying it was. Well, first of all, they couldn't have been nicer. The flight crew came over and they brought me bags of stuff to bring home to my kids and everything from wine for my wife to cookies to my kids and games, anything they could find, they were putting in bags. So I want to thank them wherever they are in this world. It was nice to be able to go home and, and to have something for little kids who were looking at you like, you've been away for 10 days. You know, where's the explanation or where's something for me, right? But I read, as I'm reading the article in the paper, I was almost tearing up because it dawned on me how, how privileged I was to have been involved in such a case and to have answered for those who couldn't answer for themselves. That poor woman who was killed was represented by nobody in life. But in death, we stood up for her. In death, we got justice for her and for the other two victims. Collectively, the people that were involved in that case put all their experience on the line. We, we did, did without sleep, put ourselves in potentially dangerous situations. We were just so determined. And I was very proud and honored to have been part of that. It was, it was a, a sense that washed over me that is rare uh, in law enforcement. So often you have negative experiences and it was based, it was, came off a negative experience, but it moved me very much and it still does to this day. And that was 28 years ago. So that was the King of Clubs case in a nutshell. More of the Fox True Crime podcast coming up. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. After those arrests, after the conviction of the people who we will not name, did that put mm-hmm. an end to the Flying Dragons, King of Clubs faction, horrendous kidnapping spree, or their that business model? Did it end it? We put a dent in some of it. That was still going on with other groups. But here's what happened. The dynamic, the paradigm shifted. What was happening in New York City for the longest time was they would request ransom. They would demand ransom from a family member or a loved one close by in, in the New York City area where they could go pick up the money, see the money, and then release the victim. Typical ransom, drop, and release. We were batting a 1,000 on those. If, if that was your way of doing things, we were going to get you. We'd set up on the ransom drop and arrest you. Or if the victim wasn't there, we'd follow you back, or we'd grab you and make you tell us who the vic- where the victim was. We were very persuasive, and lives are at, at stake, so we found very interesting ways to psychologically make a person want to work with us, let them know what they were up against, et cetera. They were getting tired of being arrested at those drops, so they figured the new way, as I mentioned before, which is these are all from Fujiao province. Call the family in China. There will be no ransom drop. All you have to worry about is having your cohorts in China go to the family, knock on the door, demand the money, offer them the loan, whatever it is, but it was being done in another country. And then the victim, we had cases where a victim would just be thrown out in the street and we, it was never reported to us. Now we have a victim who comes in and tells a story about being abducted and held. Family called to China. So after the fact, we're having to work it. That was their workaround. But because we had some very well-connected members of the major case squad, there's a thing called the Chinese Consolidated Business Association in Chinatown. That's a very, very important part of the fiber of Chinatown. We had people who were placed very highly within that um, through family. They managed to make a call to the Fujiao authorities in Fujiao province of China, explain our problem to them, and request their help. They helped. They agreed to help. They said, sure, we'll do that. So we established contact with them, established the protocols. The first case that we got out of the bat where the family said, yeah, my family was called in China. This is what happened. We referred it over to them to do the China end of it, which is to monitor the ransom pickup or the demand for money or whatever it is. The first case that we had, 
these two morons went over to pick up money and half of the Fuzhou police authorities jumped them. And in China, it's not like America when it comes to the judicial system, as you probably understand. These two individuals met Chinese criminal justice very quickly. They were executed. And it's they don't waste time. It's not a 10-year process. It could be a 10-day process. I mean, they, they killed them. Mm-hmm. And that took us from 55 to 60 kidnappings a year down to probably eight. And half of those were drug-related and not Asian. Only those who didn't get the memo or the email were doing kidnappings after that because they learned, we're going to pick you up if you do it here. We're going to get you here. And if you do it over there, the Fujian police are going to get you, and it's going to be worse. So we, we essentially put them out of business. It was an it was incredible turn of events. Um, but that's how we did it. In addition to the collaboration and their summary executions, mm-hmm. did they ever request extradition for the murders? Did the CCP or the Fujiao province law enforcement ever want to, because the system is different here and there were life without parole sentences, mm-hmm. did they ever request to bring anyone back to their soil, any Chinese nationals or because they weren't yet American citizens. Were there any jurisdictional requests on their part? Not that I recall. I don't recall anything like that happening. I think the Chinese authorities in many ways were interested in helping us with the case for a number of reasons, not the least of which is they have elements of their law that allow for the government to seize property of family of people arrested for such crimes. And it was a moneymaker. So whatever your motivation is, that's what it was. But they, I don't remember that request at all. The 17 driver's licenses, the 17 IDs that were spread out in the room, did Mm -hmm. those 17 include the three that were your original victims in New York? Or were they 17 in addition to the two females and male in the basement in New York? I believe they included our victims. So it was 17 in total that we charged them with. And it was a very interesting moment. I remember my partner, uh, Detective Bob Sasek, phenomenal detective, I walked up into the into one of the offices one day, and these individuals had been brought back to New York already, and we were going to go kid, uh, not kidnap. I'm sorry, we were going to go <laughs> fingerprint. <laughs> well, technically, that's a, that's a know, different podcast. <laughs> I know, I know. Arresting somebody is a kidnapping, right? But we uh, we were going to go uh, fingerprint them, and we were lining up fingerprint cards. We used to print four cards per per perpetrator, per defendant, and we're lining them all up, and it's seventeen times four. You know, it's like, that's a lot of cards. You know, we're doing a lot of prints. And when you look at 17 sets of prints, that's, well, that's per defendant. They're going to get charged 17 different crimes. We have to get an arrest number for each one of them. So I remember the main guy taking a look and through an interpreter, detective interpreter, he said, why so many? Uh, You know why so many? He's like, really? And he's counting them. 17? Yep, we got you for 17 individual charges. And that was um, that was an amazing day. The look on their faces when they realized, when their attorneys tell them, you know, this is not, you're not going to Rikers Island and getting out on bail. You're not going upstate for three years. You're going to a far-flung place in this country in a federal prison system where you are completely ill-equipped to survive. And you're going there for the rest of your life. And 23 hours a day, you're going to be in a small cell by yourself and one hour a day you'll be on the roof, shackled with supervision. That's your exercise time. And that's the life that they have. They chose it, though. And uh, I hate to be cruel or anything, but what they did, they were savages, absolute savages. They deserve the punishment. That's why that level of, of punishment in this country exists for people like them. Stay with us. More of the Fox True Crime podcast after this. Was there an explained reason for their level of brutality that you've described. Did they enjoy it as sadists? Was it part of their culture as a as a, an indicator to future kidnapped victims and the families? Was it used as a, as a leverage tool to get the money? Um, was there ever an articulated reason of how torturous these people were? I'd have I'd have to guess, and if I had a guess, I would say they're sadistic. Mm-hmm. I would have to say that they are consumed with the power given to them to control the existence of the person that is their kidnapped victim. Uh, I'd also say the gang mentality, the mob mentality, there's five or six of them together. 
who can be the most brutal, who can be the most, most cruel, who can do this, who can do that. And it was it, for a variety of reasons. I don't think it necessarily was a, a message to any future victims so much because they were already afraid of being kidnapped. Um, it was brutality for brutality's sake, I would have to theorize. Mm. When you arrested the individuals in Milpitas, you described what happened mm-hmm. to the two in L.A., you know, the coward that jumped out the window and the mm-hmm. attempt at resisting you. Um, yeah, Bruce Lee. Yeah. Did did the individuals resist in Milpitas, those final three that you apprehended there? No, they were overwhelmed with force. It was a full SWAT entry, and they just hit the floor. They, <clears throat> they knew, you know, what was happening. Uh, we didn't know if they were armed. We didn't know if they would fight back. So the Milpitas Police Department used a full SWAT tactical entry, and they were overwhelmed quickly. Um, they they may have if they if they had known. I mean, they were well aware that their two cohorts had gotten arrested in L.A. The word traveled. They knew it. Right. Um, so they were on the run. That's why they went 400 miles north. They hightailed it in a car and drove all through the night until they made it there. And start to finish, the duration of time where it was 55 to 60 kidnappings a year, you know, the height mm-hmm. um, of this, their cartel grip, how many, how long did that duration last? Before that was several years. I would have to say it's at least four to five years, if not more, of a steady flow of kidnappings that we were dealing with that were uh, mostly Asian, but we also had drug-related kidnappings that were involving other ethnic groups, and some of them were Colombian, Colombian cartel groups that did kidnappings, and, and they were surgical in their precision and how they did things very professionally. Yeah. But we we had uh, we watched it go, like I said, from 55 to 60 down to single digits. It was unbelievable. We put them out of business. Mm. Um, and it was a collective effort, a lot of people, but it was a great strategy and it worked. You, you mentioned the gratitude or the gratification that you felt in that moment. And I, I can't imagine mm-hmm. the gratitude that the community felt and these it, these people who, as you said so eloquently, had no one in life had you in death. And um, it's just a heartbreaking, brutal business model to have to hear, you know, trading human lives and torturing humans. Um, Mm -hmm. How amazing your work, how incredible your service, Dan. We're so grateful to you for this and for the collaboration that I feel like this case illustrates as well. The intensive Mm -hmm. collaboration, the strength of intelligence, the strength of the interpretive world and the seamlessness with which you are all operating. Federal, state, different states, different locals. Um, Mm -hmm. Do you have any final thoughts that you'd like to share with listeners, either on this case or in general? Well, first of all, as I mentioned before, it was an honor to work on such a case because it was a real challenge. And it was something that all of us were very motivated, very motivated to speak for these victims. And it's something that people may may not know about police and police detectives. We really care about people. (laughs) We really do want to see justice for people who are victimized. And we don't take it lightly when somebody decides to treat people like they're garbage. Yeah. Uh, I, w- I went into this profession uh, as a 21-year-old kid, had no idea I would ever work on things like that. But everything I had learned up until those moments in that case has all came to bear. And at the end of the day, uh, my humanity was touched by being part of something. If you can't stop something, at least have an answer for it, at least be able to do something about it. And we were able, who knows how many victims we were able to save from being victims because of that collective work. And that's the gratification point. It's not that I did such a great job. I was part of a team, a massive team of people uh, with expertise in various areas. And it takes that working together. But mostly it um, it takes the dedication and commitment to move through your own exhaustion, to look past your own, I have to eat, I have to sleep. No, I'll get to that later. I'm going to get this done. We're going to find these people. We're going to bring them to justice. And I was so proud to work with the people I work with on this. And uh, to this day, if I ever talk to any of them, you know, we talk about this case because it was so consuming for that two-week period, pretty much, where none of us had, had any life except this case. And nobody complained. That's how it is. You know, you do what you have to do. And um, it, w- it was just an honor and a privilege. And I'm just here to share the story of many people. But I I, um, I, I thank the Lord that I was around at that time in that place and able to do something for people who, as I said, 
felt powerless, you know? Nobody should ever be treated like that. It was subhuman, and I, I, it shocks the sensibilities that the crime scene was horrific. These, these poor people went through, yeah. But that was a, uh, a case that I'll never, ever forget, obviously. And it's remarkable to hear that what is organized crime, these, these molecules of hate and uh, evil, frankly, that operate with impunity in mm-hmm. two different countries— and that have operated with that perceived impunity for so many years, that in mm-hmm. the span of 10 days, which might have seemed like an eternity for you while you were in it, but in the grand scheme of things, is such a short period of time that you obliterated them. You know, they were completely taken down within mm-hmm. a very short period, um, and that that case can have such an impact. 10 days of your life as right. an officer, as a detective, as a uh, someone who is committed to service and justice, just 10 days Mm-hmm. Say you saved countless lives and you brought down a an organized crime unit, a cartel that had gripped, frankly, two countries in fear. And and because they they deemed a certain community discardable, which I find mm-hmm. reprehensible as well. Yes. Um, so um, it's really incredible, Dan. I'm so honored to have you share this story with us. Thank you. We can't wait Thank to have you back because I know that's just one of many in your illustrious career. But please know how grateful we are um, for your time today and most importantly for your service and again for the impact that you've had on so many countless victims and would-be victims. So thank you. Thank you, Emily. It's a pleasure. Um, getting to meet you was a pleasure last year. I look forward to seeing you again. But thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to share this case and to highlight the exceptional work done by uh, men and women of law enforcement. People need to know. There's a lot that goes into these and a lot of stuff we personally take out of ourselves for other people. But we do it because it's a commitment. It's not just a job. Please rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts, and Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. If you have a story or topic you want to hear on the show, we'd love to hear from you. Send us an email at truecrimepodcast at fox.com.